Section 23 of the Science History of the Universe, Volume 6. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Melanie Young. The Science History of the Universe, Volume 6. Edited by Francis Rotewheeler. Botany. Taxonomic Botany. Part 2. The third division, or pteridophytes, is represented first by the ferns, but also includes the horsetails and club mosses. The ferns are well-known plants, and the ordinary forms are easily recognized. In fact, the general appearance of the large compound leaves is so characteristic that when a leaf is said to be fern-like, a particular appearance is suggested. In the tropics, not only are great masses of the low forms to be seen, from those with delicate and filmy moss-like leaves to those with huge leaves, but also tree forms with cylindrical trunks encased by the rough remnants of fallen leaves, and sometimes rising to a height of 35 to 45 feet, with a crown of great leaves, 15 to 20 feet long. If an ordinary fern be examined, it will be discovered that it has a horizontal underground stem or rootstock, which sends out roots into the soil and one or more large leaves into the air. These leaves, appearing to come directly from the soil, were once supposed to be different from ordinary leaves and were called fronds. But although the name is still used in connection with fern leaves, it is neither necessary nor accurate. These leaves are usually compound, branching either pinnately or palmately. There are two peculiarities about fern leaves that should be noted. One is that in expanding, the leaves seem to unroll from the base, as though they had been rolled from the apex downward, the apex being in the center of the roll. When unrolling, this gives the leaves a crozier-like tip. The other peculiarity is that the veins fork repeatedly. This combination of unrolling leaves and forking veins is very characteristic of ferns. Probably the most important fact about the fern body, says Coulter, is that it contains a vascular system. The appearance of this system marks some such epoch in the evolution of the plants as is marked among animals by the appearance of the backbone. As animals are often grouped as vertebrates and invertebrates, so plants are often grouped as vascular plants and nonvascular plants, the latter being the thallophytes and the bryophytes, the former the ferns and the seed plants. The presence of this vascular system means a special conducting system, and in connection with it there are developed the first roots and the first complex leaves. On account of the vascular system and other resistant structures, the remains of ferns have been preserved in great abundance in the rocks. These records show that the ferns are a very ancient group, occurring in special abundance during the coal measures. Another striking fact about this leafy body of the ferns is that it never produces sex organs, 
but does produce spores abundantly. This means that it is the sporophyte in the life history of the fern, and when it is contrasted with the sporophyte of bryophytes, the differences are remarkable. Among the liverworts and the mosses, the sporophyte is a leafless structure attached to the gametophyte and dependent on it, while the gametophyte is the leafy body doing chlorophyll work. Among the ferns, however, the sporophyte is an elaborate leafy structure and entirely independent. Therefore, when one ordinarily speaks of a moss and a fern, the gametophyte is referred to in the former case and the sporophyte in the latter. This means that in passing from mosses to ferns, plants have transferred the chief work of food manufacturer from the gametophyte to the sporophyte, which has thus become the conspicuous generation. The sharp and easily marked distinction between the prothallus or gametophyte and the fern plant itself, sporophyte, has led certain writers on biology to consider the fern as a typical plant for the purpose of comparison with certain typical animals, which are assumed to represent a similar stage of evolutionary development. Aside from the dangers which arise from such an assumption, it must be said that in many respects ferns are not typical. They should not be regarded as the ancestors of the present flowering plants, but as a somewhat highly specialized offshoot from the main line of descent, which at the present geological age is not biologically successful in competition with the seed-bearing forms. The gymnosperms are one of the two groups of seed plants, the most familiar ones in temperate regions being pines, spruces, hemlocks, cedars, etc., the group commonly called evergreens. It is an ancient group, for its representatives were associated with the giant club mosses and horsetails, in the forest vegetation of the coal measures. Only about 400 species exist today as a remnant of its former display, although it still forms extensive forests. Gymnosperms are very diverse in habit. They are all woody forms, but they may be gigantic trees, trailing or straggling shrubs, or high-climbing vines. There are two prominent living groups of gymnosperms. Cycads are tropical forms with large fern-like leaves. The stem is either a columnar shaft, crowned with a rosette of large compound leaves, with the general habit of tree ferns and palms. Or they are like great tubers crowned in the same way. The tuberous stems are often more or less buried. In ancient times, cycads were very abundant, but now they are represented by about 80 species, scattered through the Oriental and Occidental tropics. They are especially interesting in their resemblances to ferns, and some of them might be mistaken for ferns, did they not bear large seeds. Conifers are the common gymnosperms, often forming great forests in temperate regions. Some of the forms are widely distributed, as the pines, while some are now very much restricted, as the gigantic redwoods, or sequoia, of the Pacific Slope. The habit of the body is quite characteristic, a central shaft extending to the very top. In many cases, the branches spread horizontally, with diminishing length at the top, 
forming a conical outline, as in the firs. This habit gives the conifers an appearance very distinct from that of the other trees. The large cone of the pine is made up of sporophylls that become very thick and hard, and that are packed closely together until they spread apart to let out the seeds. On the upper side of each sporophyll, near its base, there are two sporangia, in each one of which there is a single large spore, or megaspore. So large is the spore that it looks like a conspicuous cavity in the center of the sporangium. These structures also bear old names that may be used. The sporangia were called ovules, and the sporophyll bearing them was called a carpal. The large spore was regarded only as a cavity in the ovule. The cone, therefore, is a group of carpels, and to distinguish it from the staminate cone, it may be called the carpelate cone. It is evident that the pine tree bearing the sporangia is the sporophyte in the life history. That is, it is the sexless generation. The sporophyte has now become so prominent that it seems to have become the whole plant. The pine being heterosporous, there are male and female gametophytes. The small spores, or pollen grains, germinate and produce very small male gametophytes. Only a few cells are formed and these remain in the pollen grain. The single large spore within the ovule is peculiar and never leaving it. It is never shed, but produces a female gametophyte, which lies embedded in the center of the ovule. The reason, therefore, why the gametophytes of such plants are not ordinarily seen is that one is within the pollen grain and the other within the ovule. Before fertilization can take place, remarks Coulter, the pollen grain which develops the male gametophyte with its sperms must be brought to the ovule, which contains the female gametophyte with its archegonia. The pollen grains, or microspores, are formed in very great abundance, are dry and powdery, and are scattered far and wide by the wind. In the pines and their allies, the pollen grains are winged, so they are well organized for wind distribution. So abundant is the pollen of conifers that it sometimes falls like a yellow shower, and the occasionally reported showers of sulfur are really showers of pollen from some forest of conifers. Some pollen must reach the ovules, and to ensure this it must fall like rain. To aid in catching the falling pollen, the scale-like carpels of the cones spread apart, and the pollen grains, sliding down their sloping surfaces, collect in a little drift at the bottom of each carpel, where the ovules are found. In this position, each of the most favorably placed pollen grains begins to put forth a tube, a pollen tube. This tube, containing the two sperms in its tip, grows through the ovule and reaches the archegonia. Then the sperms are discharged, and when they reach the egg, fusion takes place and fertilization is accomplished. The angiosperms are the flowering plants. In many flowers, there is no regularity in the number of members in each set. For example, in the water lily, petals and stamens occur in indefinite numbers. And in the buttercup, the same is true of stamens and carpels. 
In most flowers, however, definite numbers appear either in some of the sets or in all of them. When these definite numbers are present, they are prevailingly either three or five. That is, there are either three or five sepals, petals, stamens, and carpels, although it is very common to have two sets of stamens, in which case they number six or ten. These numbers appear so constantly in great groups that the two grand divisions of angiosperms, called monocotyledons and dicotyledons, are characterized by them, the former having the parts of the flower in threes, the latter in fives. This does not mean that all flowers of these two divisions have one or the other number, but that these are the prevailing numbers in case there is a definite number at all. Not a few dicotyledons have flowers with the parts in threes, and a still larger number have them in fours. In many cases, stamens and pistils are not found together in the same flower. In such cases, there are staminate flowers, that is, those without pistils, and pistillate flowers, that is, those without stamens. These two kinds of flowers may be born upon the same plant, which is then said to be monoecious, or one household, or upon different plants, which are then said to be dicetious, or two households. These terms are applied indifferently to the plants or to the flowers, either the plants or the flowers being spoken of as monoecious or dicetious. About 40 monocotyledonous families are recognized, containing numerous genera and about 20,000 species. The dicotyledons are a much larger group than the monocotyledons, containing more than 200 families and about 100,000 species. Most of them are easily recognized by the floral number 5 or 4, the net-veined leaves, and the arrangement of the vascular bundles of the stem in a hollow cylinder. In the lower stretches of the dicotyledons, there are a number of small families that include the most common hardwood or deciduous trees. And this assemblage of conspicuous forms may be considered together without selecting any special family. They include elms, sycamore, walnuts, hickories, oaks, chestnuts, willows, poplars, cottonwoods, birches, beech, etc. These trees are all characterized by their simple and inconspicuous flowers, which are usually wind-pollinated. Passing from these forms, which in the older terminology are not inaptly described as apitalius, there is the very large group of plants which have distinct and separate petals, which are well described by the adjective polypetalous. It would be impossible in the space at command to adequately describe or even name the important plants which come under this head. As a type, one might perhaps take the flower of the flax, the parts of which are regular and symmetrical, and show, except in the ovary, no fusion. But there may be wide departure from forms like these, and the habit of considering any one flower as a type and the other forms as deviations from that type is one which the modern botanist eschews. It is not unreasonable to suppose, however, in a general way that the irregular flowers, like the sweet pea, for example, have, in the evolutionary sense, been the result of later development than the simpler and symmetrical forms.
one potent factor in the development of partial fusions and of flowers which are not radially symmetrical is probably that of the relation of the flower to insect visitation for the furthering of cross-pollination. A tendency is found in general toward modifications which, as they can be interpreted, make for the restrictions of the movements of insects or parts of insects among the floral organs and thus render more probable the carrying of pollen from one flower to another. The culmination of this tendency, along with condition known as epigeny, the insertion of the calyx, corolla, and stamens on the ovary, is seen in the sympatelius, dicotyledonous type. In the sympatelius or gamopatelius flower, the petals are fused into a bell or tube, a condition which may or may not be accompanied by other fusions. It is conceded that the compositae, sunflowers, daisy, asters, which are of this sympatelius type, represent the final and highest development of the dicotyledonous flower. Composites are found everywhere, but are most numerous in temperate regions, where they are usually herbs. The name of the family suggests the most conspicuous feature, namely the organization of the numerous small flowers into a compact head which resembles a single flower, formerly called a compound flower. So common are the composites that the general structure of the head should be understood. Taking the head of arnica as a type, the outermost set of organs consists of more or less leaf-like bracts or scales, involucre, which resemble sepals. Within these, there is a circle of flowers with conspicuous yellow corollas, or rays, which are split above the tubular base and flattened into a strap-shaped body and much resembling petals. Within the ray flowers is the broad expanse called the disc, which is closely packed with very numerous small tubular flowers, known as disc flowers. If a disc flower be removed, it will be discovered that the ovary is inferior, and that arising from it, around the tubular corolla, there is a tuft of delicate hairs, or pappus, which represent the sepals. This pappus surmounting the achene in composites may be lacking. End of section twenty three. Recording by Melanie Young.